This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast. Uh, this is the extension of the Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host, Brock Wilbur, and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. How is everybody doing? I am on a bit of a journey this week. Uh, Headed back home to find some musical instruments uh, from high school days, rebuilding some of my studio, so uh, packing up guitars I haven't seen since high school. They need some cleaning, Uh, so that's going to be a little uh, stay-at-home project for me. Um, Also found every terrible t-shirt and polo shirt that I wore in high school, I understand now why dating was difficult, Um, especially since a lot of these certainly didn't fit me at the time. In retrospect, a lot of things that could have been done differently. Anyway, I'm hanging out around uh, two very, very vaccinated family members, and last night we got to watch the KU basketball game, uh, which, uh, what a fun return to watching collegiate sports, but also being in a room with at least one other person who just wants to yell at the television. And I'd forgotten uh, what professionals my parents were at it. Because if you watched the game last night, uh, we just uh, sort of invited a team over for a friendly game that didn't really mean anything. And then they uh, trounced us right until the last couple of minutes where we somehow pulled it out of our ass. Uh, My mom loves to shout at the TV as if the players can hear her. She takes on the role of coach and uh, doesn't understand why they won't do what she asks of them. My father uh, thinks that he exists four or five seconds into the future and that the announcers should be able to hear him. So he shouts a lot of things. And then when the announcers comment on it, he'll say, that's what I just said, Greg, uh, as as if they, uh, they're copycatting uh, what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> I'd personally just forgotten how great college basketball announcers were. I got used to watching a lot of football this year, and in football, there's quick bursts of action and then a lot of downtime where you can gather your thoughts. And in basketball, you just got to keep rolling. Uh, and Sometimes that means you get the Dick Vitale sort of color commentary where, where words just keep coming out, and uh, you hope you go fast enough that no one really goes back to ask you about any of it. Uh, tonight, one of the commentators uh, com- compared a player to the War of 1812, uh, and later in the game was uh, getting texts on his phone about it from friends. So, uh, yeah, I miss that. I miss the chaotic energy of color commentary on collegiate sports. Uh, Just fun to see that again. Anyway, uh, wonderful Streetwise for you this week. We have an interview with the director and star of a horror film that just came out that I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, We have Nick's Music Corner, as per always. Uh, But first, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is going to read Dan Leiberger's story about John Brown and the history of a man whose shadow is still cast over the entire Midwest. John Brown's Kansas still bleeds. Revolution, Murfreesboro, and our nation's stain. By Dan Leibarger. I was at a party at my apartment complex near the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, taking in what passed in the 1990s for hip-hop. Anybody remember third base? 
The tunes in alcohol were a good way to unwind after a week of graduate school, but I was still a little nervous because I lived in a big city for the first time in my life and spoke with a nasal Kansas twang that made me stand out in a crowd. Another man who also stood out in this crowd was a guy I'll call Dwayne. His voice stood out as much as mine, in part because Dwayne seemed eager to pick a fight. While the alcohol and other intoxicants set a pretty mellow, genial mood that evening, Dwayne was set on confronting anyone who would listen with a question nobody felt eager to answer. You ain't from Murfreesboro, are you? It's a town of about 1,500 people in Pike County, two and a half hours from where we were. Visitors can actually dig for diamonds for a small fee there, so it was hard to tell why Dwayne hated the place so much. Being more intoxicated than the rest of us prevented him articulating his grievances, but he sure seemed eager to find anybody from the town so he could tangle with them. By the time he got to me, I was thoroughly annoyed and didn't care about his feuds. You ain't from Murfreesboro, are you? No, I replied. I'm from Kansas, thinking it would shut him up. You ain't one of them John Brown types, are you? Because John Brown had been dead for 130 years by then, I didn't have any retorts or any other answer to give Duane. He then began to prove Liebarger's law. Every statement that begins with, I'm not a racist, but, ends as badly as any action that begins with, hold my beer. He made some statement about how he wasn't bigoted, but fortunately further drinking finally silenced him. His question, however, still hasn't left me. It doesn't seem to have left America either. In 2020 alone, there have been a new history book, The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom by H.W. Brands. He holds the Jack S. Blanton Sr. Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin, and has previously written biographies of Andrew Jackson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Ronald Reagan. A new movie, Emperor, which dramatizes the life of Brown's comrade-in-arms, Shields Emperor Green. The movie is co-written and directed by veteran producer Mark Amon, who was also an executive at Lionsgate, and is an alumnus of the University of Kansas. And the Showtime Blumhouse miniseries The Good Lord Bird, which features Ethan Hawke, who also co-wrote the pilot and produced the series, as Brown. It's based on James McBride's National Book Award-winning 2013 novel. Like the book, it takes a comic angle on Brown's life. Before that, Brown's angry face greeted visitors to the Kansas State House in Topeka on John Stuart Curry's mural Tragic Prelude. That same image even graced the cover of the band Kansas's first album. Osawatomie, which was his base of operations for a year and a half, has his image all over the town. Both Orson Welles and Michael Curtis, the director of Casablanca and Mildred Pierce, have recounted his life, and Arkansas's Johnny Cash played him in a miniseries. As the song John Brown's Body declared, his truth is marching on, even if he isn't. Making Kansas Bleed You might wonder why Duane dreaded John Brown while my mother was honored as a John Brown queen in Osawatomie during their once annual John Brown Jamboree. One of my dad's ancestors fought for the Union in the Civil War, but some of my mother's forebearers owned slaves and supported the Confederacy. They would have been horrified to have a descendant who, knowingly or not, kept a violent abolitionist's memory alive. Before the first shots were fired on Fort Sumter that started the Civil War, Brown participated in a very hot war that took place before Kansas even joined the Union in 1860. Brown, who originally hailed from Connecticut and later upstate New York, moved to what's now eastern Kansas in 1855, following five of his twenty children here. Brown had tried a series of professions, tanning leather, surveying, land speculating, farming, all of which left him cash-strapped and in debt. 
At 42, he'd declared bankruptcy and was a party in two dozen lawsuits. As Grady Atwater, the curator for the Adair Cabin Museum in Osawatomie, explains, his sons had come out to Kansas Territory for two reasons, to make a new start and to make sure that Kansas would come into the Union as a free state. U.S. Senator Stephen Douglas from Illinois had championed the cause of popular sovereignty, which meant that the people in the territories about to become states should decide for themselves whether to allow slavery on their land. The idea of settling the issue democratically sounded both practical and benign. It was one of those plans that sounded great in Stephen Douglas's office, explains Atwater. What he didn't count on was the reality of life on the frontier. Anybody who lived out here would have known that is not going to work out here. People eager to influence the outcome of Kansas's eventual decision flooded into the territory. Brown and his party came with a rifle and pistol. When pro-slavery forces sacked the abolitionist stronghold of Lawrence in May of 1856, Brown and his men drug five men out of their homes and hacked them to death near Pottawatomie Creek in Franklin County. The incident is recalled in terrifying detail in The Good Lord Bird, but Atwater points out there are crucial differences between Ethan Hawke's attack and Brown's. It's important to remember that Brown and the forces he fought were not professional troops, which ironically made the violence more grotesque than what trained soldiers do. James McBride made a much better effort than his predecessors to be historically accurate, but when he did Potawatomi, John Brown did not cut off anybody's heads. What happened was that John Brown's men did not know how to use swords. They threw the pro-slavery men to the ground, and those men did what you or I would do. They threw their arms up, which was a reflex. That's where you get the chopped off arms, says Atwater. A month later, his militia fought in the Battle of Blackjack, where Brown's forces captured pro-slavery leader Henry Pate after Pate's men had captured two of Brown's sons. Osawatomie itself was a battle site on August 30th, when pro-slavery militia leader Reverend Martin White killed Brown's son Frederick. Brown and 40 men managed to hold off an attack long enough to escape. When Brown's troops left, General John Reed's more numerous forces practically burned the town to the ground. A park where I played as a child now sits on the site of that battle, and it includes a bronze statue of Brown that was forged in the same French foundry where the Statue of Liberty was constructed. The territory was known as Bleeding Kansas, but the fight eventually went the Free State's way. Brown and other Free Staters scared off pro-slavery immigrants. In a phone conversation from Austin, Brands explains, If John Brown committed those acts today, he'd probably be labeled a terrorist. It's a textbook definition of terrorism. It's an act of violence committed against unoffending people, people who'd done John Brown no harm. They posed no threat to him to make a political statement. The statement was, this could happen to you, pro-slavery immigrants to Kansas, if you insist on coming. That said, Brown could be surprising in his restraint. He once came upon White, who fought for both sides during Bleeding Kansas, and left him alone. Sometime later, John Brown and his men were in Missouri, and they came across Martin White, just sitting outside reading a book says Carrie Alton Burned by phone from Lawrence. He gives presentations as John Brown. What Brown's men intended to do was kill him in revenge for Frederick, but Brown turned to them and his son Watson, who had specifically come to Kansas to kill Martin White, and said, I can't. This is not about revenge. What we do here is for a principle, and that principle is the restoration of human rights. This incident shows up in the novel of The Good Lord Bird, but not the series. Another factor in the abolitionists' favor was Kansas itself, Cotton, rice, and other crops that prospered on slave labor didn't grow well here. Much of where slavery took hold is an artifact of the crops that slaves were used to grow, says Brands. Slavery never really caught on with the industrial enterprise. It's a principal reason that the North abandoned slavery in the early 19th century. The northern economy was already evolving. 
In industry, you need a flexible labor force. You can't be supporting people when business declines. You need to be able to lay people off, says Brands. Tobacco was wearing out the fields of the Atlantic coast. In the 1790s, most people thought that slavery was on its way out. It was becoming unprofitable in those states. Brown left Kansas and embarked on the act that both defined and ended his life. Because he traveled under assumed names and photographs of him were not readily available, he spoke to abolitionist groups in the North as part of a plan to take over the nation's largest armory at Harper's Ferry in Virginia, now West Virginia. With the rifles stored there, Brown hoped to lead a slave rebellion across the state. In 1859, Brown's force of 16 white and 7 black abolitionists overtook the lightly guarded armory. The legions of slaves Brown hoped to liberate didn't arrive. Instead, state militias and federal troops led by then-Colonel Robert E. Lee wounded and captured Brown. Leading abolitionist Frederick Douglass correctly determined that the mission wouldn't work, and it's hard to imagine Brown and company could have notified the people they hoped to liberate that help was on the way. Instant messaging wasn't available when the telegraph was becoming part of everyday life in America. He did okay in Kansas because the people he was fighting against didn't know anything more about military affairs than he did, says Brands. But anybody should have been able to see that Harper's Ferry is really easy to get into, at least if you come in by surprise. But it's really hard to get out of once the state militia had been alerted because it's at the bottom of a steep canyon where the Potomac and the Shenandoah Rivers come together. All you have to do is block a couple of roads, and the people who are in there are stuck, and that's exactly what happened to them. McBride's comic angle makes sense in this context, but Alton Burned notes that Brown was more unlucky than crazy. He wanted to go up into the mountains of Maryland and create this army, and the army would go down and raid into the south, free blacks, send them north on the Underground Railroad, cause enough trouble and disrupt the economy of slavery that it would be useless, he says. Brown and his men cut the telegraph lines, which slowed down reinforcements from the militia and the federal troops. A shooting before the raid on a railroad bridge ended up summoning the people Brown hoped to avoid fighting. The trains kept moving, and fresh troops eventually arrived. I always like to say they got in, and they got the guns, says Mitch Bryan, who teamed with Oscar winner and fellow Kansan Kevin Wilmot, Black Klansman, for the screenplay Shields Green and the Gospel of John Brown, which 20th Century Fox and director Chris Columbus, Home Alone, purchased but never filmed. Bryan has also written episodes of Batman the Animated Series, and currently teaches at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Maybe if they hadn't shot that porter, Hayward Shepard, maybe they would have been able to slip in and slip out. Sadly, Shepard was a free black man. Brown ended up losing ten men, including two of his sons, but his statement at his sentencing later rallied other abolitionists to treat him as a martyr after his execution on December 2nd. Brown said, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act of reward rather than punishment. It would be in vain to kill him, Henry David Thoreau wrote before then, Prominent and influential editors accustomed to deal with politicians, men of an infinitely lower grade, say in their ignorance that he acted on the principle of revenge. They do not know the man. They must enlarge themselves to conceive of him. I have no doubt that the time will come when they will begin to see him as he was. Thoreau may have written several things that are standard coursework in English classes, but his appeal didn't stop Brown from hanging on December 2nd. On the day Brown died, French novelist Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, foretold in the London news, Viewed in a political light, the murder of Brown would be an irreparable fault. 
it would penetrate the Union with a gaping fissure, which would lead in the end to its entire disruption. The Civil War soon followed. Marching on. Somehow John Brown has still managed to disturb people like Duane and inspire people like Hugo. Perhaps the reason he's left an impression despite his brief 59 years is because he's not an easy person to understand. Krawaski A. Salter, a retired United States Army colonel and military historian, is the executive director of the First Division Museum and was the inaugural guest associate curator of military history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. He says... When you think about a figure and you think about race in America and people who have battled against racism and the way a particular people are treated, John Brown, I think, is still an enigma in many people's minds. I think a lot of people are struggling with the enigma that he is. Was he misguided and reckless in the way he operated in the 1850s and certainly in Bleeding Kansas and Harper's Ferry, or was he focused and a visionary? I think those are two of the reasons people are still writing and talking about John Brown today. As I observe the polarized political environment we live in today, it seems to me that many who have extreme opposing political and some personal points of view consider the others reckless and those they agree with visionary, though many don't say it out loud. America has experienced many polarizing periods, but the two I see at the top of my list are the 2010s and the 1850s. I think we as Americans should ponder that distinction. I think he means more to Kansans than he does to people elsewhere in the country, adds Brands. Events proved that John Brown was on the right side of history. He got there first, if you believe, as pretty much everybody does, that slavery was wrong and needed to be ended. John Brown realized that before most of the people of his time did. Not only that, but he had the courage of his convictions to take action to give his life to the cause. On the other hand, he's a troubling individual because he did some things that nobody should countenance. He committed brutal acts of murder in Kansas. He tried to start a war in Virginia. Atwater adds that Brown sticks out because many of his abolitionist peers seemed unwilling to end the bondage of nearly four million Americans. If Harper's Ferry didn't lead to a massive revolt, the legislative process moved slowly and often ineffectively, too. Slavery was costly and cruel, but it was also big business. The British Empire had basically made it illegal. The United States was one of the few First World countries that still practiced it, says Atwater. The moderates have gone kapoof and disappeared from history. They were moderates working on a way to end it. One of the great problems was that there were millions upon millions of dollars invested in slave property. I hate to talk about people as property, but that's what they were by law. People in the government were trying to find ways to reimburse them. People were coming up with gradual emancipation, which was maybe in 25 years, so that slaveholders can start hiring people. One question that still troubles me is that both sides of the dispute over slavery use the Bible as the basis for their views. It's a thick book, but the certainty that both sides had seems baffling when each thinks it has the right to kill. McBride describes the dilemma eloquently when his protagonist Little Onion laments, Brown was like everybody in war. He believed God was on his side. Everybody got God on their side in a war. Problem is, God ain't telling nobody who he's for. Brian adds, Brown is also interesting in that he's a liar. He said that his family came over on the Mayflower. He was bullshitting everybody as well. You never knew where the performance ended and the real person began. My Answer Having spent the last few months digging through Brown's life and the legend that has been built around it, I think I can now answer Dwayne's question. I drink free state beer, Brown disapproved of alcohol. My church attendance is non-existent, and I don't keep weapons around my apartment. Nonetheless, I think I am a John Brown type because I can't stop reading or writing about him. 
Brown demonstrates that the issues that have inspired Black Lives Matter in this summer's protests are neither new nor going away. While he might have been guided by forces other than divine judgment, the issues he combated still require action, and the solutions aren't easy. One of the things that continues to make America great is that our founders understood that they wouldn't always get things right. That's why we can amend the Constitution, and the document itself says it was written to form a more perfect union. Patriotism is an ongoing exercise, and longing for a glorious past that never existed is the opposite of what Brown and the folks who wrote the Constitution wanted. I've reached my deadline, and I'm still devouring books on Brown, and so are Atwater and Altenburn, even though they are already experts. Brown's truth is marching on, and so should we. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. In an email to The Pitch a week or so ago, musician Rob Rice let us know that over the course of the last couple years, he's been chipping away at an EP of his original music that turned into a collaborative effort of 13 Kansas City artists and musicians. Due out March 21st, and The Devil's Threesome features Rice humbly assuming the role of choirmaster to a caravan of iconic Kansas City artists and musicians to create unique trios for each song, meditating and musing on the woes and winds of yesteryear. Featured alongside Rice are the likes of Mickey P., Mark Lowry, and Terry Quinn, among others, and the first track off And the Devil's Threesome, Tiny Window, is now available on major streaming platforms. Featuring Calvin Arsenia and Ezgi Caracas, this angry yet empathetic single shines a spotlight on learning to appreciate the only natural light source in a cold, cathartic basement. We'll have an interview with Rob Rice about And the Devil's Threesome in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, you can check out more details at his website, robricemakesmusic.com. Here's Tiny Window. Starts with a spark and it ends in a flash Just know that your heart won't be the same as it was For good and for bad But it was just harmless, I know you aren't Someone that would cause this intentionally But that just how love goes And how am I supposed to Forget what all went on here How we turned the basement From a dungeon to our home How you practice dance moves In the mirror in the back how you'd blast the heater Oh, to rid us of the cold, yeah How all your belongings Were scattered on the wood floor How come all the bed sheets You know they never stay in place How the only sunlight from this tiny window How you barely come around And how much I miss your face
And I shout now cause no one hears it I wonder about who you see and then if they come close to what you want hard to go out with another girl when you still come around and you fear that you might lose me well i lost you first oh and how am i supposed to forget what all went on here how we turn the basement a dungeon to our home, yeah, how you practice dance moves, in the mirror in the bathroom, how you blast the heater, oh, to rid us of the cold, yeah, how all your belongings were scattered on the wood floor, how come all the bad no, they never stay in place, no, how the only sunlight comes from this tiny window, how you barely come around, and how much I miss your face. starts with a spark and it ends in a flash just know that your heart won't be the same as it was for good and for So this week on Shudder, there's a horror film that just came out uh, called uh, Lucky. Uh, and Lucky is the tale of a woman where every night a serial killer shows up in her house to kill her. And she beats him, and then he comes back the next night. Just keeps doing this. And every every night she reports it to the police. And more and more, it's very obvious that no one really cares that this is happening to her. Uh, so today we are talking to the director of that film, uh, and also the film's writer-star, about what it is like to make a slasher film about a shared, universal, gendered trauma. Uh, so that's that's this. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Would you two introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, I'm Natasha Kermani. I am the director of the film Lucky. 
And I am Bria Grant, the writer and uh, lead actor in the movie Lucky. So good. Everyone's here so we can talk about Imitation Girl. Imitation Girl is such a good film. Would you, how, how is that your debut? Because it's, it's fucking annoying how good it is as a debut. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, no, it was, we didn't know what we were doing. That movie, we had no idea. Uh, I, I came out of film school directing, you know, short films like everybody else. And uh, we were making our bread and butter doing commercials. So we started a little production company. Um, and, and we're doing branded content and commercials and sort of out of that uh, money pot and resources pot, we, uh, we decided to put a bunch of uh, crazy ideas together and, and made that film. And, and I, I really, you know, it's interesting because Lucky is also so singularly um, designed around an actress uh, or an actor. Do we say actress anymore? We say I I interchange them. I think I that like I'm actor. not supposed to, but we, we were I, yeah. doing it last night at the Globes, and I just I'm like, haven't we moved past this? I, I thought we collectively agreed. Yeah, let's just yeah. say actor. So, um, but but anyway, Lauren Ashley Carter is an incredible talent. She and I had been working on a bunch of short form stuff, and uh, so you know, sort of designed the film around um, her and and sort of showcasing her in these two very different roles. So, yeah, it was a blast and. And, uh, you know, luckily Bria liked it. And so when uh, <laughs> when the producers are like, hey, what do you think of this director for, for your movie? She was open to it. So. Yeah. How did, Bria, how did you find her? And how did you find Bria? And how did you know that this, wait, did, you, did this start from the place of like, this is the project? Or was it one of those like, the two of you should do something? <laughs> you know, it's one of the more like Hollywood-esque moments of my life where I, um, got a call from Epic Pictures uh, producer there and they were like, do you have any scripts that you might want to make? Uh, we're trying and the to answer is yes, because you have a million scripts, you have comic books, you like, you're the <laughs> most prolific. prolific person I've ever met. Like it's, uh, it is it's equally life. annoying to this debut film. Like, it's just like, oh, how does anyone have that much talent? It's so good. Yeah, but I don't have friends, so it's fine. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I just stay at home. <laughs> uh, quarantine has been wonderful for me because it's just my normal life. Um, I'm kidding. I Quarantine has been horrible. Um, but I, uh, yeah, they called me and they were like, do you have any scripts? And I sent them this one because it had been in a couple places, but... Uh, no one had quite made it. It was like one of those like whatever stories. And then in like this- How, how long had it bounced around for you? Three years, maybe. Oh, okay, that's um, not too bad. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and I mean, that start, that's like, I started writing it for three years and it had been at maybe two other places that were kind of gonna make it and it never quite happened. It, in um, watching it felt like one, I, I think I commented out loud to my wife. I was like, this feels like something that she was trying to make for like seven years and everyone yeah. was like, I'm not sure if we're ready for this. <laughs> By the time it got made, it would be five years. So yes, I gotcha, think that. Gotcha. So you're you're not you're not wrong. Um, uh, and then they were like, "We think Natasha would be a great director. We want her to direct and you to be the lead of the movie." Uh, which is how I hear things go, but that never happens to me. Me, I'm always like begging someone to be a part of something until it actually happens. <laughs> but this was like a and we will write a check situation, which was. Uh, a little bit of a dream scenario in some ways. Yeah. And, and for me, it was more, uh, I knew Bria socially. We had never actually worked together. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a fan and we knew each other as friends. But, uh, you know, when I got the script, I read it with her in mind. So it was very much like, oh, I can see this. Start it's hard to not to when it's her script, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I just, it, it was just there um, in my brain. And I think the producer said, you know, oh, you know, it would be great if she was, if she played the role of May and I think this is how it should go. And, and so that's kind of how I read it. And it, it, you know, even a few pages in, you kind of know if you're going to do something or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was already starting to sort of materialize and I could see the scenes sort of coming alive. And the script is really not that different from the first version that I read. Um, and I know Bria got a lot of like crazy exec notes through her journey through the, you know, executive world. But, um, for me, it was like, okay, I get it. I understand what you're trying to say. There were a few logistical things that we moved around, but, um, but for the most part, it's not that different from the script I read. That is part of the previous question. I think a little bit too, where I was just like, what were the notes like on this from the people (laughs) writing the chat? Cause like so much of it makes it to screen, but I imagine that there were so many people that are like, have you considered this and that idea being bad? (laughs) Yeah, you can, whatever you're thinking of, yes. Like that is the (laughs) notes. The notes were, um, uh, yeah. It it makes me think of like, I I saw the Lego movie in a theater when it first came out and there was a dad in the row in front of me with like two small kids. And in the last like 10 or 15 minutes when it's revealed that like the bad guy in the movie is a shitty dad, this dad stood up and grabbed his kids and took them out of the theater. He's like, I won't let the good name of dads be besmirched. And I was like, there have to be male executives that read this. And were like, this is a condemnation of all men. I'm in that group. I don't think I like that. Pass. Yeah, yeah, there were uh, some uh, notes that didn't totally work. And, you know, I'm I'm still, especially like when I was taking this out, I still felt like I needed to sort of do whatever I needed to do to get movies made. And so I tried to make some changes in this script and always kind of came back to the like, I think you're wrong. I think this script is what it is. And like to Natasha's credit, she got it from the beginning that it wasn't, I mean, and I know that they come up a lot where people were like, you know, who's the bad guy? What's the, what's the, you know, who's the slasher? How can we remake this? What's the sequel? You know, like that kind of question. And from the very beginning, Natasha was like, what? No, that's not what this movie's about. And that was, meant that she knew, she got it. She understood that the movie was not about who the bad guy was or the biggest question was Natasha will laugh at. People would always be like, but where did the husband go for most of the movie? And we're like, we don't care. Who cares? <laughs> Where's Ted? Where Where's Ted? Ted? What's Ted I think doing? Perhaps that, that no <laughs> question like was so prevalent because it was like, your character in the like the movie seems like it is built for the character to have also received the same set of notes and and it is so fascinating that you do have like I didn't watch the trailer before watching the movie and then I watched the movie and then I watched the trailer and I was like oh you you guys just reveal the whole thing sort of within that you're like this is what we're doing because the there's no twist to give away it is about the experience of this thing because you're like yeah, it, it, it is already what it is. It is already its own sequel. Like, this is why you're coming mm. in. There's something so fascinating about about taking on, like, a, a thing that would, for somebody else, be like, you've got to keep everything a secret. And for you guys, you're like, here is what it is. Here is the point of why you should watch it. Yeah, I mean, the twist happens 10 minutes into the movie. So I, right. I that is the movie. The movie is the twist, I guess. So there, there was never any... When I would pitch the movie to people, I would tell them about the scene in the bedroom and they're either on board for the husband saying, yeah, that's the man who comes to kill us every night, or they were not on board for it. That's the pitch of the movie. So that, mm-hmm. I think that's the whole point. 
It's an exploration. The movie is a crescendo, right? Like it's a crescendo of weirdness and distortion. And it's, that's really what it is. It's a meditation on that experience and diving deeper and deeper through the looking glass. It's not about twists and turns and, you know, reveals. Um, I think the what's fun about it is we're playing with the, with the tropes of the genre of a slasher movie, right? But there is no big moment of unmasking. And, and then there's like this really definitive answer of who's been tracking her because you know the the issue is is far more complex yeah it's not fucking scooby-doo it's something yeah, it's totally <laughs> yeah. How, how do you enter into something where like it is this subject matter uh and it is within the genre of a, of a slasher film and be like how do, how did you settle uh early on in like here's how we're gonna make it funny because that seems to be like the trickiest tonal thing to pull off. Luckily, Bria is funny. So she just wrote it in her own voice. And knowing her too was helpful. I was like, oh, I totally, I get the tone of this. <laughs> it's dark. It's dark and it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was one of those things that like, um, it's quarantine. Sometimes you put movies on and people aren't watching and they're fumbling on their phones. And, and I was watching, but my wife was sort of like looking at her phone through the first part of it and wasn't seeing the facial reactions. So she like looked up about 10 minutes in and was like, this is really dark. I'm like, this is really funny. You have to see what she's doing here because otherwise you don't understand what's going on. I love the idea of someone watching it but not like totally paying attention and thinking it's, I mean, she's not wrong. It is dark. It is a a dark movie. I have a dark sense of humor. Uh, for sure. And so does Natasha. And the movie is dark. It, it is a dark movie, but it's okay to laugh. It is supposed to be funny. You're supposed to laugh at parts and feel uncomfortable. Do that uncomfortable laugh where you're like, oh, ha, like that, I think is the 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 tone we're trying to elicit in a lot of parts. I, I, I think the thing that became the most confusing to me or uh, was that ha laugh was that the characters in this world seem to not take her seriously and at the start it just seemed to be men and I was like okay this totally tracks because you know female pain is never taken seriously by doctors (laughs) there's there's such a culture there and then you started to see the female characters also not take it seriously and that was one of those parts is like where are we going here what's what's happening and then to uh sort of get into like well we've all just accepted that it is what it is, which is like one of the most painful like line deliveries I've ever seen in a movie, uh, especially because it keeps coming repeatedly. Um, why take it that direction? Why, what, what informed your thing on this to be like, oh, like there is no like catharsis. There is no escape from this. This is its own sequel because nothing ends. Or do you think that it do you think that the movie takes it a different way? Do you think that the message is, is supposed to be taken that this can be beatable? <laughs> I don't think we're looking at any sort of resolution. So don't don't right. come into this movie looking for, for any kind of resolution. I think it posits a lot of questions and it, it, it definitely doesn't shy away from the less... Um, pretty and less packageable aspects of like postmodern feminism. It definitely acknowledges that there is a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of lack of connection. There is white feminism. There is um, ageism. There is a lot of 
things at play here. It's a very complex issue. Um, however, I will just say, you know, to the, to the top part of your question, this is May's story. So even the other women in the story are all there as an expression of May's experience. None of the characters, none of the things you see on screen, nothing you hear is anything standalone. It's all in relation to May's experience. Um, if, if that's sort of a partial answer to, and then the, the larger part of that is that we're all experiencing from our own perspective, right? It, which is what I like about it. It is a, it's an absurdist piece. It's a piece of absurdist theater, um, taking her experience and externalizing it into all of the characters, into all of the production design, into all of the cinematography. Everything is an extension of May. Uh, you know, if you were to do a sequel, you could do it from another woman's perspective. And then it would be completely different. And May would be an absurd element in that woman's experience. So it's all this very singular perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally, I mean, I, I, the story, yeah, exactly what Natasha said. You're looking at this from the point of view of a woman who writes self-help books for women that tell you to go it alone. This is what she would do. This is her this is her solution. She lives in this world where this is how she views people. She tries to come up with solutions that make sense into the world that she has built. And she's built, not only she built an like her job on her empire on, but she's definitely internalized. Um, and, and I think, I, I mean, it's something that Natasha got immediately from the script is it's not, it's not prescriptive. It's not like, this is how you would survive this world. This is what, how you should act in this world. It's just how this woman acts in this world. And I don't think we're necessarily saying it's good or bad. We're saying this is just her story. Um, and she is and deeply flawed. Sure. She is and a flawed I, character. Yeah. And I love, I love flawed women. I love women. I love women who don't make the right decisions. It's a little bit of anti-final girl, you know, like instead of making the perfect choice to save everyone and save herself and do all of the, you know, all of these things that would be so galvanizing. It's like, no, this is kind of where we're at. And this is kind of what we've been telling women for years that you should, you know, somehow, you know, push everyone else out and, uh, and, and save yourself above all others. I mean, that, that is, has been a message in a lot of these books, which I read, I read, I read the books about leaning in. I love them, <laughs> but it, there is a danger to them. Um, and, and I'm not trying to like um, disparage any, any, any self-help book writers or people who write this kind of stuff. I think there's good. No, you're not dragging women down. Like it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say like, I am a reader. I understand them, but I think, you know, we're, we're at this point where we should be talking about the messages that we're, we're sending women. So uh, this screener came in a day after we published a huge expose we'd been working on for two months uh, about a local restaurant uh, and the chef owner that runs it, who is a huge piece of shit and just like seven years of like abusing employees, uh, especially women, sexism, anti-black behavior, like mm. just just this laundry list of terrible, terrible things. Uh, and and I believe that that restaurant is shutting down permanently now. Mm. The the weird thing uh, that aligned with this movie that made it like carve into my heart was that uh, in our community, uh, some of the most negative reactions to the story came from women in the service industry who uh, their response was, well, this happens everywhere. Why is this even a story? Uh, and then to watch your movie where it was like, yeah, this is just how it is. Um, it, it was this very, very uh, shaking reminder that like, 
there are so many people that don't want to hear about this because they've just accepted that that's how it will be. And and for your character to have, have sort of done so and to follow through in the movie with saying like, yes, we, we go alone, we do that. Why did you settle on that? Like, did you did you settle on that because you think that that's a reflection of of how we handle things? Is that a reflection of? It, it also ties into, I suppose, the the book about like you know, go your own way because that is, I suppose, survival advice at this point. Like, what what do the two of you think about what that message is? I think it's horribly tragic. <laughs> it's definitely a tragic moment. That moment in the parking garage is is very dark and and at that point you know we've really left behind any of the comedy that we're playing with at the top of the film in that sequence in that conversation we are having a serious conversation um and it's may's inability to connect with the other women in that garage or, or her her friend um that is ultimately you know it, it she's damned in a lot of ways and she's stuck in I, this i've loop. never seen that in a horror film ever where it's just like oh we're all trying to survive too like i'm sorry, sorry. i i gotta <laughs> And Bria, I don't know if you want to talk about that parking garage sequence, because I know you added it in. And I think that's so interesting. That yeah, a, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, in an earlier version of the script, it ended just going back to the house. And um, you saw some of the police from earlier. And there's some things like that. But it, it didn't go to that parking garage scene. And I realized that the story I was trying to tell was a story of a, a broader societal issues that was actually the story that I was trying to tell and it was some of that it was obviously through the lens of May and like it is her story but I wanted to touch on the fact that this is just one story among all of these other stories that are happening at the exact same time and uh a lot of times we are too busy to pay attention to other people's stories um and which is a tragedy uh but also yeah I, I wanted to touch on that so um, of course putting it in a parking garage made the most sense. And I added that scene much later, like Natasha said. I'm, I'm still reeling from this story about the women. Sorry, I like got really like, I worked in a restaurant for years and yeah. I would say like, um, uh, yeah, there was something I called the casual butt graze, which is when uh, you're walking through the kitchen and somebody somebody just does like the slight, like touches your butts, just, just a little. The, the, the graze. slightest graze, yeah. Slightest graze. Um, and that was just how you lived. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I haven't waited table, tables in many years, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, there is such, we're talking about systemic problems where it's okay to do a casual butt graze, but also like moving that upwards, it becomes a slippery slope where it's okay to do other things. None of them are okay. Um, and that's how you end up with these very toxic environments. Um, but women are very tough. Women are very tough. The reason the women were saying that is because they're saying, I've done this for 20 years and I'm fine and I'm still here and I'm functioning and I'm happy and I'm living my life. And to say, no, this affects me. This affected me. I have trauma. It fucks up your life. That fucks up your day. That fucks up a lot of shit. And women don't need that. They're, you're already dealing with a bunch of stuff. And so that is, that's a survival instinct that's coming in. And it's something that is only um, really properly addressed as a community, which goes back you know, to the, one of the main themes of the film, which is we can't go it alone. Like this is not, one person is not, you're not strong enough to fix this whole systemic issue, right? Like it need, you need to form allyships. You need to have a community. And and I think the movie Lucky 
is not afraid to shine, you know, to show a mirror to yourself in moments when maybe you have not been an ally or you, you know, reacted a certain way. It's fine. It's no big deal. What's the big deal? You know, and, and that, and, and turning a mirror to that and saying, no, we, we do need to, you missed an opportunity, <laughs> you know, that was an opportunity to try and tackle this issue. And um, it's hard to take, it's hard to do. It. It's not easy. Yeah. What was the hardest scene to get in the film? Which one did you have to work the hardest to shoot? That dining room was tough. Oh, oh, oh. I hated the layout of that dining room. But mine uh, is just going to go to technical. I know that's not your question, Brock. Your, your question. Say, it absolutely you, is, too. It's fine. <laughs> the parking garage, because uh, the way it was written had to be changed based on location and budget. Because originally in the script uh it was like a tall parking garage where you had to look where you she looks down and physically all these women are on floors below them but we made this movie in 15 days for a budget of nothing so there's like no way to make to do that and natasha came up with a brilliant um uh uh something that i think works even better honestly <laughs> will you promise to keep using tara perry in every film you <laughs> Tara Perry, Nakia, Gam Nakia Gamby Turner is also in this one. She's in that and Twelve Hour Shift. Mm. Um, there's a lot of the, yeah the the you you have a crew, and I just appreciate watching my former <laughs> LA friends be part of your crew. I'm like, it's just good to know everyone. <laughs> it's nice. It's nice to have the same people over and over because you can call them and be like, you know, I can text Chase Williamson and be like, hey, will you come in for like two days on this thing? And he's like, okay, you know, or. Uh, Jesse Merlin or Nakia or somebody like that and they're like yeah yeah whatever what do you what do you need me for fine I'll show up and do a song in the middle of a weird movie yeah, totally <laughs> they were so uh, game for that I loved yeah. that they were like sure let's yeah. sing it <laughs> I I will let you go uh, with the final question here which is that um, we are recording this on March the 1st it is start it is the start of Women's History Month uh, and as the editor of a local publication my inbox is full of brands letting me know how they are celebrating Women's History Month by lifting up Girl Scout cookie sales or something that uh, just makes your eyes roll out of your goddamn fucking head. Um, would each of you, like obviously the absolute perfect time for Lucky to come out, um, but would each of you offer up something, especially for like younger members of our audience, uh, a book or movie or something that you have found really you know, defining for who you are, uh, something that helped you find your voice uh, in feminism? I, I actually know immediately. Um, I discovered Octavia Butler when I was in college and I'm a science fiction nerd and somehow had gotten to the ripe age of 20 without really ever deep diving into Octavia Butler or even really knowing who she is. Um, and that is a crime. <laughs> She's one of the most important writers um, uh, that we have. And so I would encourage picking up any of her work, um, especially if you're a science fiction lover. Uh, and I won't say anything more. Just pick up one of her books and dive in. I made it to 28. So you're getting it at 20. You're just shaking it. And that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I will say I also didn't discover Octavia Butler until my 20s. And that is a shame because I read science fiction much younger than that. And for some reason, people were handing me Kurt Vonnegut, but not Octavia mm -hmm. Butler. And mm -hmm. um, although I do love Kurt Vonnegut, I think uh, Octavia Butler was way more my speed at the end of the day. Um, 
I think, I mean, I'll go back to age 20, age 19, Bria Grant, um, someone handed me a Bell Hooks book and that has always been sort of my foundation for feminism. And um, I, I revisit those books every few years and I always recommend them. Um, and then I saw her speak somewhere and um, Bell Hooks has a very high pitched voice. And there was something about that to me being very young and I also have, high pitched voice and I kind of kind of talk like a teenager still and there was something about the fact that someone could write all these books and be so prolific but yet not but yet be someone that I was like oh I see that I also um could be a person that people might listen to even though I sound like a child <laughs> and um and she was doing intersexual inter intersectional feminism you know in year 98 or something like that so I I think that was my introduction to feminism um thank god uh was it was something so much more it wasn't just like plain white feminism that had been around for so long I will let you get on with your media tour congrats on what is just a fucking chef's kiss of a movie uh, Thank you, can't wait to share it with everyone I know. Uh, congratulations. It's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the great questions. Absolutely. Have a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Streetwise podcast from here in Kansas City. I'm your host, Brock Wilbur. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, check out thepitchkc.com. Uh, we are always having a fun, wacky time over there covering everything happening in Kansas City. If you ever feel like tossing us a few bucks to keep the lights on, please do. You can also catch copies of the magazine up there in digital form if you're not finding them out in the world. The latest issue should be up for you right now, and it is a doozy. Uh, so check that out. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of what we do. And check out all the other great shows that are coming to the Pitch Podcast Network. Uh, we have just a ton of new things that have been hitting. Check out our website and you can find a couple of great shows, including uh, KC Top 5, uh, which I've guested on a couple of times already. It's just uh, people sitting down in a, in a circle uh, arguing over the top five best barbecue places, beers, celebrities to come from here it's uh it is a quick fun wacky time for everybody anyway thank you so much for listening pitch in and we'll make it through bye 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 bye, bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.